Let's open up to 1 Peter uh, 4. We were learning last week about suffering for being a Christian, and we ended in 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. Remember, we were talking about even a little busybody, right? Even a little busybody. Um, you will suffer because you're in other people's business where you should not be other than uh, when God calls you to that and in his spirit. 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but what? Praise God that you bear that name. In other words, what is that old saying? That if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Right? Right? If you're arrested as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's great. That's amazing, right? And that's what he's saying. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And we were talking about some that were suffering just last week, like um, Tebow, Tim Tebow, or uh, wherever you stand on, whatever side you stand of Scott Walker, he's still a Christian and he's suffering for that very fact. So we had brought up some uh, celebrity-type people that are in the know, uh, and they are suffering for Christ's name. For it is time for judgment. This is where we're going to start today. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's from Proverbs 11.31. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do What? To do what? Good. We're supposed to continue to do good. That means that you're supposed to be doing good now. Because he said you're supposed to continue to do good. Okay? On to five. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never ever ever fade away may hear a hallelujah right come on right young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older all of you that's why it's really good to get older right do you have these people that are submissive right Mary is that great then you have people submissive unto you right Mary that's a good thing Right. Uh, to those who are older, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Time, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Right? He's not one minute early. He's not one minute late. Right? He continues to care, continues to care, and we're the ones who need to fling or cast it on him. Be self-controlled, alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know. How do you resist him? Standing firm in the faith. Okay? You don't flee from him. If you run from him, guess what he does? He runs after you. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to this eternal glory in Christ, after you've what? Suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him in the power, forever and ever. What? Amen. Amen, amen, amen. And then he goes on and talks about Silas. And he... But I want to stop there for a minute, and I want you to go back to uh, 17 through 19, because you're committing your soul, you're committing your soul to God in the midst of your suffering. It's not after you suffer that you go, oh, that's right, I should commit my soul to God. 
I should have done this, right? No, it's you commit your soul to him in the midst of your suffering. Brian and I didn't have kids till late, later in life, and there was a card that this one girl sent us from Channel 4 that um, it was, you know, one of these, like, real sort of retro-looking cards, and the girl's going like this, you know, like bright pink, bright orange, sort of cartoony-looking. She goes, oh, I forgot to have children. You know, it was like, oh, you know, and, and this is like that same kind of feeling. It's like, oh, you know, when I was going through it, I, I didn't commit my soul in the midst of the suffering. You know, and, and I didn't need to go through this without casting my cares on him and casting my anxiety on him because he cares for me. And I chose to go through this, like, you know, biting my teeth, clenching my fists, and, and, and making it on my own. And asking Jesus to bless me instead of absolutely committing your soul to him. Because he says, For the time has come for judgment. All right? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Okay. In the context of suffering. All right? Now remember, the Christians in this time were suffering for the cause of Christ. Okay? All right? Just like we are. All right? Not, not the same type of suffering, but they were suffering for the cause of Christ. All right? And Peter tells us that judgment begins at the house of God. Hmm. What? The house of God, right? Well, he's using judgment in a positive way with Christians. Okay. We are the house of God. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says we're what? What are we? Temple of what? Holy Spirit. What? Know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right? That's what he says. Don't you know that you're the house of God? The Holy Spirit lives in you. Right? He used to go between the seraphim and cherubim and, and uh, between the you know um, ark and, and, and his presence would rest there. It would be in the cloud. It would be in the pillar of fire. Right? And his presence would rest in the tabernacle and this, this. Not anymore. Right? Jesus ascended and, and the other counselor we learned at t- retreat came. Right? Another counselor, the spirit of Christ came to live in us and through us. We're the house of God. We're his temple. We're it. We're what he has. That should either scare you or lo- you'd love it. Okay? We're it. We are it. Okay? And how, yeah, and how, exactly. And so how we are to walk through with the house of God, right? Judgment is in this, when he says judgment, we always think, oh, judgment. No. The judgment in the purifying sense. In the purifying sense. In, in the positive purifying sense. And for the Christians. Because we're already past the other judgment, aren't we? What other judgment are we past? What are we past? Are we going to be judged before God at the great right throne? No. no. We're already past that because we're believers, right? We've already crossed over. He sees us seated in the heavenlies with him, right? We're already there, right? Yeah, amen, right? We're already seated in the heavenlies with him. We're not going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. And I always go back to uh, the story, which uh, I've used numerous times and it bears repeating. It's from Malachi 3.3, which says, He, meaning God, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Okay? That's what he does with us as believers. And the story goes on to say that this verse puzzled some women in a Bible study. They wondered what this verse implied about the character and nature of God. One of the women went to find out what that meant to see about what refining silver meant, what it looked like, and then was to report back to the Bible study the next week. And so the woman went to a silversmith and made an appointment to watch him at work, and she didn't mention anything about her reason for the interest beyond her curiosity of just seeing the refining of silver. And so as she watched the silversmith, he held the silver in the fire, over the fire, and let it heat up. He explained he was refining silver. 
One needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were the hottest so as to burn away all of the impurities. So he kept holding it there. And the woman thought about how God holds us there in such a hot spot. And then she thought about the verse that says, He sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. So she asked the silversmith if if it was true that he had to sit right there in that spot in front of that silver as the fire was hot and watch it the entire time. And he said, yeah, he couldn't move. He had to sit right there holding it in the fire. He had to keep his eyes on the silver at all times because if the silver was there a a moment too long in the flames, it would absolutely be destroyed. And so the woman was silent for a minute and she said to the silversmith, well, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? And he smiled at her and answered and said, oh, that's easy. When I see my image in it. When I see my image in it. Okay? See that word refine? Refining silver? God will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Okay? Malachi 3.3. Or the Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> Malachi 3 3. He will sit. Deb, that's so cute. She's never heard it. I love it when nobody's heard that before and they just get a bang out of it. That is a Tom Kish saying. I got that about 20 years ago. Malachi 3 3. He sits as a purifier and refiner of silver. Isn't that the sweetest? He holds us in that hot spot. Why? To hurt us? No. Why? To ruin our lives? No, why does he sit there? To refine us. That's judgment. That's pure judgment. That's because he loves us. That's a positive thing. And he keeps you in that hot fire and he goes, you know what? I have you. I'm watching you. I know your every need. I know your every desire. I know your every anxiety. I know everything. I have gone before you. And I'm holding you right here. And you rest in that. You rest in that. And then when he sees his face in you, Done. Done. Come on. Come on. Let's set you up as this beautiful silver piece. Let's let's be useful. Let's be this, right? That's who he is in us. That's who he is in us. And that's what Peter means when he says, For the time has come for judgment at the house of God in verse 17. Why should we use the word judgment then? Because it's a positive judgment. We always see judgment as bad. No, this is a positive judgment. In other words, you are judging when that refining is done. You are seeing, okay, she needs to stay there a little longer in this, in this, this, whatever it is, because I need to see my face in her, right? I want to see my reflection in her. So I'm going to keep her in that little hot spot. That doesn't mean that it's bad, guys. Okay? It's just how he knows how to purify us, how he knows how to refine us, because he knows our heart. He knows what it's going to take us to be conformed to the likeness of who? Yeah. Him. Him. And that's when he sees our, his reflection in us. And if you don't want that, tell him. Tell me you know what? I, I, I don't really like that. Give me the desire to want to be like you. Give me the desire to be in a hot spot. Give me that desire to want to be refined and purified. Because if not, Philippians 1 says, he has begun a good work in you and he will complete it. He will complete it. And my mom mom used to say, and you know what? You can come kicking and screaming if you want to, but he's going to complete it. I don't want to come kicking and screaming anymore. Right? I want to come under his absolute purifying positive judgment of him refining me. And whatever it takes, Lord, so be it. So be it. You know, I think too often we think of judgment as something that's 
bad because we correlate it to the great white throne judgment. Um, instead of thinking, as as a parent, you judge your child on maybe something that did they did was good or was bad. But when you're judging them, they know that what they did was worth it. So then, what what they do matters. So then they matter. So if we think of two as God's judging us as you know what we we matter to Him. So what we do matters, what we say matters, how we act matters. So He's judging us for... Which is exactly what Charles Spurgeon said. You rock, Kristen. This is what he said. It is right for judgment to begin at the house of God. There is equity in it. For Christians profess to be better than others, and so they ought to be. They say they are regenerate, so they ought to be regenerate. So they say they are a holy people, separated under Christ... So they ought to be holy and separate from sinners, as Jesus was. Doesn't mean you're, you know, that you're holier than thou and self-righteous. That's not what he's saying, is he? No, he's saying that we are to be. We're regenerate. We're born again. Then act like it. Then act like it. Right? Then mature, because then he's going to go into First Peter five and say, "Hey, guess what? Those of you mature around here, come on." Let's be under shepherds. Let's be under shepherds. Do exactly what the chief shepherd does. That's when he sees the reflection of his face, right? That's it. So he says, now is the time, back in 1 Peter 4, 12, last week we're saying, now is the time for the fiery trial. Okay, remember when he says, hey, don't consider it like, whoa, what's happening to me when you're going through trials, right? Now is the time for our fiery trial, okay? The ungodly will have their fire when? Later. Later. <laughs> later. Now is the time for our fiery trial. Now is what he says. You know what, Margo? This is what you need in your life right now. Because I want to see more of me and less of your putrid self. And so this is why I'm allowed this. Because this is the fiery trial that turns us into him. The purifier and refiner of silver, okay? The, the fire we endure now purifies us. Purifies us. It doesn't punish us. It purifies us. Anybody going through fire at all? Little fiery trials? Oh, yeah. Right? It purifies us. It absolutely purifies us. The ungodly, however, will endure a punishing fire forever. Forever and ever and ever. Okay? There is never, ever, ever, ever any punishment for God, from God, in our sufferings. Only purification. Only purification. And what happens is, is we have a misconception of God that many of us grew up with. And that's why you need to have that non-negotiable, face-to-face time in the Word of God every single day so that He can change your mind. We have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, because we grow up with bad habits that have the transneural transmissions in our head. And they, we go back to it, we go back to it, we go back to it. You know, that we do something, He's going to zap, we got cancer. This, you got this, this. That's not who He is. He never, ever is that. He's always wanting you to have abundant life. He overcame the world. He wants you to be an overcomer. He wants you to have success. He wants you to follow Him. That's who He is. That's who he is. And so he doesn't, he doesn't ever punish you through the sufferings. He's purifying you. He's purifying you to be more and more like him. So as you walk through this world, guess what? Others are going to say, whoa, what's different about that person? And they're going to follow you to the throne. Right? Crown of glory. Crown of glory. Barbara. I have to tell you this. I was talking about this yesterday. This is one of my favorite Jill Briscoe. Um, talks and um, to back up a little bit I came across this when I was pregnant with Sophie which was a terrible time I was on 
have bed rest, but like the last four months of my pregnancy with her, my marriage wasn't doing so hot. I was afraid I was going to have another kid with hemophilia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And my fiery little personality. Well, Jill Briscoe talks about um, the donkey carrying Jesus into church. Like, we're all little donkeys. Oh, that was good. Heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like so true. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a donkey, all right. <laughs> but then she talks about how, you know, once we get under control, then we can carry Jesus people, you know. Amen. Amen. That's I've never. Which tape is that? I've never heard that oh, one. It's, Donkey for Jesus. No, <laughs> no I think I it goes all the way. That would not sound good, would it? No. Her whole series on beatitudes. Oh, all right. Okay, all right. Oh, I don't you? I know. I love how God gives her those illustrations. Only Jill. It's just I know. Funnier with her. I know. Oh, with the little British accent, please. Right. I mean, and anything that anyone says, they could like you know recite the ABCs, and you'd be like. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's beautiful how you said D. You know, I mean, right? Any, any, Brit, right? any British accent. I mean, it's just great. It's, don't think for a second that all those little Brits aren't being hired on all those reality shows and all those kind of stuff because they have those beautiful little voices, right? All right, so we, thanks for sharing that. We suffer only for purification because we as believers, right? We as believers, as, as Christ followers, the punishment was settled once and for all where? At the cross. At the cross, our punishment was settled once and for all at the cross. It's done. It's over. He's already won. It's victorious, okay? And that's where Jesus endured the punishment that the Christian will never, ever, ever face from God. How cool is that? Jesus took the hit from us so that we could come into a relationship with God the Father forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's why he wants to purify us so we can draw near to him and he draws near to us, right? And we become more and more like him. And you know, the same fire, so we're being purified by fire, okay? But the same fire that absolutely consumes straw will do what with gold? Purify it, right? Just like silver, right? It'll consume up straw, but it will purify gold. It will purify silver, okay? The fire is the same, but the purpose is different. Fire is the same, same hot fire, but the purpose is different, okay? The purpose in application is different, okay? And its effect, therefore, on the straw or on the gold. Are you following me? Okay, same exact fire, purpose for application on the straw or on the gold is different, all right? So... Christians, you and I as believers, do suffer the same things that ungodly people do, don't we? Right? Okay. However, the purpose of God is different in our lives than in their lives. And the effect is different. Okay? We suffer the same things, go through the same type of fires, but for us it's purifying. For us it's, you know, becoming more and more like Him. For us, the purpose of God, hi Jeannie, is different, and the effect is different. And the effect is different. That's a good, good thing. In other words, when we're going through it, we should say, Lord, what do you want me to learn in this? What do you want me to learn through this? Not, how does this affect me? When the ungodly and the worldly get hit up against something, what's their first thing it says? Why me? Why me? Why me? What, you know, pity party me. Why, why would this happen to me? I mean, I'm this, 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 this. And they list all their, hopefully, attributes and this, this. Why me? Why me? 
Like Stuart Briscoe says, right? The question isn't to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? It's why do good things happen to bad people? God's mercy, that's why. He reigns on the just and the unjust, that's why. Because he loves us, right? And so, and so we're purified by fire and the purpose is different and the effect is different and we are to say, not, how, you know, how does this affect me? But, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this? What, what can I learn through this? What, what are you trying to purify in my life? What needs to go? What needs to go? Teach me. Teach me. Keep me there as long as you have to. Are you willing? Are you willing? Because you know what? The more willing you are, the more supple you are, the more he's willing to be able to take that vase and mold it and at that, as a potter and everything. Oh my goodness. Purifying is well worth it. Well worth it. Well, well worth it. And then Peter goes on to say, if it begins with us first, meaning those as believers, what will, the, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, he's like, whoa, okay. Um, so this sobering application is quite clear here, okay. If this is what, if this is what, going through these fiery trials, is what God's children, believers, experience, okay, what will become of those who have made God their enemies? That's what he's saying. Yeah. Okay, so if it's if it's already this is what we're going through as believers, what's going to happen, you know, to those who've made themselves as enemies? You know, how are they ever going to hope to stand before the wrath and big judgment of God? No, they can't. Okay, here's the deal. This is how cool it is. Believers, Christians, can rejoice that the sufferings we have in this life are the worst we're ever going to face. Amen. Huh? This is the worst we're ever going to face. You guys, the sufferings we have in this little point in time, eternity past, eternity future, little mud puddle, that's our life. Just right there. That's it. That's it. It's the worst we're ever, ever, ever going to face as far as suffering. So whatever you're going through right now, right, I'm telling you, if, it's, if you feel like this is the worst suffering you've ever gone through, well, you know, hallelujah, it's the worst you're ever going to face. You're never going to face that the other side of earth, in heaven, ever, ever, ever. You will never, ever face that, right? <laughs> I mean, we have seen the worst. But those who reject Jesus Christ have seen the best of their life on this earth. And if this is the best of life, oh my. Oh my. Oh my. What does it profit a man to what? In the whole world, but lose his soul. But lose his soul. They have seen the best of life on this side, on earth. The best of life their eternal existence will ever see. That should create in you a stirring to make sure to share with the next one and the next one. And the next one. And the next one. The hope that we have. Right? The hope. Hope doesn't disappoint. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Okay? And he says, Peter goes on to say that if the righteous are scarcely saved, which I really, really studied. I'm like, if the righteous are scarcely saved. Okay. We'll say, since this is true that salvation doesn't come uh, without, without difficulty. Okay? That, that doesn't mean that you earn your salvation. It doesn't mean you work with your salvation. Okay? It, it actually means, you know, 
we know that it's an absolute free gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't work Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? You can't do anything to earn it. It's a free gift of God. And as a gift, when someone gives it to you, you either reject it and say, no, no, thanks. I don't like the packaging. I don't know what's in it. Forget it. i got to first see what's in it before I'm going to accept it. Or you say, thank you. Thank you. And receive the free gift of God of Jesus Christ, okay? No, he's saying that our salvation is hard in the terms of the discipleship challenge. See, You first came to Christ when you went from blind to sight. And then saved means you keep being saved. Okay? You keep being saved until your salvation is made complete in heaven. It's it's a process. Okay? It's a process where you continue to keep being saved. You know that Brian and Margot Fiesler are married because we continue to be married. We got married on May 27, 1987 in Wailea Beach, Maui. Okay? However, we continue being married. We do married couple stuff. So therefore, you know I'm married. Okay? We are continuing. We got married, but we're married. Okay? It's the same thing with salvation. Right? You're saved, and you continue being saved. Because guess what? You're showing that you're saved. Right? You're, read for a second. Read for a second and third John, if you want to see how salvation is. Read, read how it works. Read how it works. Where you continue to be saved until your salvation is made complete when you see him face to face. Okay, so, so our salvation is hard in the claims of the discipleship challenge and the demand that we cast away all of our idols and all of our sins. That's the hard part. So you're not just saved to go on and do anything the devil wants you to do. Right? Paul says, what? Do, are you saved do, so that you can go on sinning? You received grace? Undeserved favor so that you can continue to be the same old puke? No. He goes, by all means, no. That's like begging for forgiveness instead of asking for for permission. Right? He's just going on doing the same, oh, well, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. That's not being saved, continually being saved. That's not being the discipleship following hard after Jesus. Right? That's, that's grace in vain. Remember how we learned about it? He would have been giving grace to us, so it goes what? Through us. Through us. We don't want to be a grace hoarder. We are given grace so that, you know, that undeserved favor, so that we too can give it to one another. And so he says, no, you know what? Real discipleship, genuinely following hard after Jesus Christ, is sometimes a hard thing. Anybody realize that? Yeah. It's sometimes a hard thing. It's always, always saying, you know what? Not me. Not me. Not me. Deny myself. Take up my cross. Follow you. Not me. It's, it's you, Lord. Have at it. Right? I think it's sometimes hard. I think it is hard. Oh, absolutely. And I, I just think it's, you know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And the hard part is making the decision every day to follow Christ at whatever cost. Exactly. And that's not easy. No, it's not. It's the best, though. It's the best joy. It's not easy. But the work through the Holy Spirit as you're being changed, because He is our power. Remember, He doesn't give us the power. He is our power. Being changed is the best work in life. Isn't it? Absolutely. Because you can walk through things that when you're unable, He's able. He's able. He's always able. And so it's, it's us giving it over, giving it over. And that's why we see Peter quoted when I said from Proverbs um, 11 uh, that the righteous one is scarcely saved. Is scarcely saved, okay? So I'm going to stop here and just ask you and answer to yourselves. What are your idols and, and, and your sins that you need to cast away? What are your idols and your sins? You guys know what you trip up on all the time, right? 
that you need to cast away? Does it have to do with pride? Have to do with self righteousness? Have to do with you know coveting, controlling, um, self centered life? Uh, I don't know. Lying, deceiving, holding grudges. You know the sins. The sins that so easily what Galatians says. Absolutely. Just entangle us. Just entangle Did you guys do your Christmas tree lights? Ever get them all entangled? Okay, I'm telling you, every time I look at that, I'm like, you know what? I have taken these off perfectly every year. Every year, put them through the little green thing, and then you plug it in, and for somehow, some reason, 400 lights, I undo it, and it's like, are you serious? And then Galatians comes to me. That's how your sin looks, Margo. It gets all tangled up and just takes you. Right? It just takes you. It just tangles you up, and then you're like trying to get out. Right? You have to give them over. What are the idols and sins, right, that that you need to cast away? Because he's sharing that that's where we need to be if we want to continue to be walking in the light as he is in the light and becoming more and more like him as he's purifying us with silver, okay? He says, those who suffer according to the will of God. Peter is drawing a distinction between those who suffer according to the will of God compared to if it's our own fault, okay? We can suffer by doing our own stuff, right? Our own yuck, all right? By making wrong choices, by sin. We're going to suffer, right? You choose your sin, you can't choose your what? Consequence, right? And so we can suffer the same way. However, he's saying those who are suffering according to the will of God, okay? And those who suffer elsewise. In other words, not all suffering is the will of God. If you have chosen wrong, uh, you know, and, and believe, you know, that, you know, which is totally against Scripture, you know, it says, don't lie, don't deceive, don't do this, don't do that, you know, don't, which means you don't cheat in your taxes, which means this, and you do, and you get caught, are you suffering for the will of God? No. You're suffering because you're an idiot, okay? Because you've decided to do whatever you want to do in the flesh, and you put God on the back burner at that point and said, nope, I'm going to do it this way. He says, okay, you can. I'll let you. I'm a gentleman. However, your sins will find you out. Right? Because I love you. Because I love you. And I don't want to leave you there. And I'm going to bring you back into the circle of blessing. And I'm going to bring you back here. Okay? So there's suffering that we bring on ourselves because of our own sin. Okay? And so he says, those who suffer according to the will of God, okay, okay, then commit their souls to him. All right? I love this. I looked up the word commit in the Greek. And it means... It's a technical word used for leaving money on deposit with a trusted friend. To commit. Leave your money on deposit with a trusted friend. Back there, let's say Lynn was the trusted friend. She'd be the bank of Lynn. Okay? In other words, there weren't banks around. Okay? She would be the trusted friend that I would commit my money to. And when I needed my money, okay, what would happen is... She was bound by honor to return all of that money back intact at any time. She was my committed, trusted money bank. Okay? That's what that word commit means. Commit their souls to him. Okay? In other words, such a trust was really sacred in life to be able to commit all my money to Lynn. Knowing full well Linda to return all that money to me when I needed it. Okay? So, it's the very words that Jesus used when he said, Father, what did he say? Into your what? 
hands, I commit my spirit. And where did he say that? On the cross. Commit. Very exact same Greek word as commit their souls to him. That same, you know, keeping your money deposited with a trusted friend, okay? So when Christians commit their souls to him, we leave our souls in a safe place. Right? In a safe place. We know that that when we commit our souls, our lives to him, we leave it in a safe place because God's a faithful creator, he said, and then we can give ourselves to him as pliable clay in his hands because he already has us. We've already committed to him. He's not going to, like, he always will give back more than we can ask, think, or imagine. That's just who he is. He can't be anything else but because that's his character. And so when he says that we commit our souls to him, a faithful creator, guess what? The safest place on earth is God's hands. Right? Safest place on earth in the palm of his hand. Right here. Right there. That's what commit means. Isn't that great? When you look up and you're like... Because when we think commit, you can think it this way, you can think it that way. But what he meant in the Greek term was that you placed it. You, You had to trust enough that you would place your money with someone that you would trust. Okay? Same thing when he said commit your souls. That you trust him enough that you just place your whole life with them, your soul right there and say, there you are. There you are. Now I'm safe. Now I'm safe. And now do with it what you may. Do with me what you may. I'll be that little pliable, pliable, you know, cracked pot in your hands. Just make me into who you want to make me. Right? How are you doing with that? Are, Are you giving him, are you in the safest place you can be on earth? Because it's in his hands. And he's going to mold you and he's going to make you into what he wants you to be for his best and for his glory. How cool is that, right? And so we go on to, we go on to um, chapter 5 and he, after he tells him this, he says, look, here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Here's what we have seen. Here's the attitude you need to live with. Here's the attitude of wisdom, the attitude of commitment, the attitude of love, the attitude of serious prayer, how to walk through serious trials. Oh, and by the way, all you elders as I'm a fellow elder. Okay? So he comes alongside him. In the beginning, he starts with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. At the end, he says, I'm a fellow elder with you. Isn't that great? He sets the tone saying, hey, you know what? I have authority because God's given it to me and I'm writing this and being carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit as an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the fifth chapter, by whatever, how many, you know, 200 parchments later, right? He's going, "Um, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a fellow elder with you. Okay? Elders should be faithful shepherds. And let me, let me just explain to you. Elders had special responsibilities that Peter addressed, okay? And so the idea of an elder came into the church from the Jewish culture. If you look in Exodus 3, um, just write these down. You guys can check these out. We will not look this, but I want you. Exodus 3.16. These are all from Exodus. 3.16, 12.21, in 1907. Okay, it, it just shows how the word elder was used in the Old Testament. And it just simply speaks of maturity and wisdom. Okay? Maturity and wisdom that an older person should have. There's the key. An older person should have, therefore, it made them qualified for leadership. Okay? 
So he's talking to elders who are usually older people who are mature and wise, okay? So therefore, they're qualified for leadership in the body of Christ, okay? In the body of Christ, okay? But in its application, as you read through this, and you look at First and Second Timothy, you look at Titus, and it's always talking about how the church should run and the elders and everything, you really realize that it's way more about wisdom and maturity in Christ than it is age, okay? So don't get confused about the age situation. That, you know, elder means that you have to be X amount of, you know, years old chronologically in this. Because there are a lot of chronological people who are this big in Christ. This big in Christ. Okay? It's about maturity and wisdom. The application of it. Way more than age. So, you can be an elder. Right? As you're maturing, as you're being wise, as you're spending that non-negotiable face-to-face time with Jesus, as he's transforming you and conforming you into the likeness, hi sweet, into the likeness of his son. Right? We become mature, we become wise. That's a very, very good thing. That's what he wants us to be. And if you look at the New Testament, it was a practice of Paul and Barnabas, who went around as buddies for quite a while, doing their missionary work, to appoint elders in the churches that they found. Okay, write down Acts 4, four I'm sorry, Acts 14.23, read the context of it. That's when they were they would go and they would, would go on their missionary journey and then they would preach and people would come to Christ and they would know other people would come to Christ and they'd appoint elders. God would lead them to the mature and the wiseness and they would appoint elders. They would rise up and then they would actually start pastoring the church. Okay, that's what would happen. Pastoring, teaching the church. All right, because they are wise and mature in Christ. All right, from elder, that there was a development of office that I just mentioned called pastor. Okay, and that was basically just essentially a teaching elder. That's all it was. It was a teaching elder. Uh, look at First Timothy five seventeen. It tells you all about. It. If you read all of First Timothy five, it will share with you how that works in the body of Christ. Okay, and what the teaching elder did as the pastor, they appointed elders and other leaders that. Because just like any organic group, you know, people like like even BSL, people step up and help here and do this and season a time and do that. Okay, that's that's what they do in the body of Christ. And so he just names them this. And and when you want to read more about it, look at First Timothy three and Second Timothy two and first and excuse me and Titus one. Just you can read all about elders, okay, because all they are are ones who are spiritually wise and mature in Christ and that they have qualities of leadership that they can lead people to know him. They're shepherding. They're shepherding. And then some are gifted in teaching and they rise up and then they're a teaching elder and then they pastor the church, okay? And so Peter says, I am who I am a fellow elder. Alright? So Peter was qualified to speak because he's a fellow elder and he's sharing that with them, okay? And even though he's the prominent disciple, I mean, he was, you know, the prominent disciple among the 12, he doesn't claim any special privilege here. He doesn't claim any special position here, you know, such as like the Pope or the early church. He doesn't do anything like that, all right? Peter saw himself only as a fellow elder, elder among all the elders of the church. And that's why he sets up First, uh, first Peter 5. Spurgeon says this, It will always be our wisdom, dear friends, to put ourselves as much as we can into the position of those whom we address. It is a pity for anyone ever to seem to preach down to people. It is always better to be as nearly as possible on the same level as they are. Right? Right? Do you like anyone who is up 
you know, screaming hellfire and brimstone at you as if they have no problems, as if they aren't being changed, as if they're not struggling or going through a fiery trial here or becoming more like Christ here or, you know, being purified here. We're all in this together, right? It's just the body of Christ. We just have different gifts, right? Some, some, is the, some are the mouth, some are the toes, some are the eyes, some are the arms, some are the feet, right? It doesn't make any difference. We're all a fine-tuned machinery. We are together in the body of Christ, right? I mentioned... I mentioned, um, I think it was on thir- Thursday, I mentioned, remember I mentioned it here, I think I mentioned it here, when I broke my toe in sixth grade. I am telling you, you don't even realize your toe is there until you break it. And then you realize, yeah, I need my big toe. And before it, you took it pretty nonchalantly. Oh, there's some toes down there, it's great, got to get them polished, right? It's like, no, no, you need your big toe. Same thing. We need each other as the body of Christ, as the gifts that God has given us. Okay, and so he goes on to say in, in, um, in, in the second verse, he says, A witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now he's talking about himself. Peter is a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter's absolutely qualified to speak because what? He was a witness. What does a witness mean? Saw with his eyes. Right? He was there. Johnny on the spot. Peter on the spot. Saw with his eyes. He was a witness. <coughs> Excuse me, of Jesus' sufferings. When he saw Jesus tortured, perhaps he was at the crucifixion. We're not sure, but we know for sure John was. But it said then all the others were afar. Probably he was there. I'm sure most of the disciples were there. I don't know why they wouldn't want to be there. Okay? Uh, and when he saw Jesus tortured, he saw him tortured. He was a partaker of Jesus' glory. Of Jesus' glory, okay? And what he's probably referring to there is the transfiguration of Jesus. Do you guys remember transfiguration of Jesus? Okay, it's very important you do. Because it's in Matthew 17. Open up to Matthew 17. Because Peter was with Christ in the garden. He was with him when he was apprehended, you know, to go and, and um, to the cross. And he was with him in the high priest's hall. Uh, and and I, we believe that he followed him to the cross as well, okay? But we know for sure that he was with Jesus when Jesus was transfigured, okay? And so Matthew uh, 17 is, is when uh, Jesus is transfigured. And what this follows is um, Peter had just confessed, well, who do people say I am, Peter? This is Elijah, this is Moses, this is that. Well, who do people say I am? And what did he say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he confesses, and Jesus says, Oh, oh, oh Peter, that wasn't from you. That was from the Holy Spirit. That's from the Holy Spirit. He confessed aloud that you are Jesus, the Son. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? And so Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then, and then the next uh, situation that happens before his transfiguration is then what happens is, is that Jesus predicts his death. He's telling all the disciples, By the way, Share this before with you, but you know, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then you know, I'm going to die, and then you know, I'm going to be convicted, and this, this, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to be raised again, and this, this, and they're all like, huh? Ah, ah. And they're, he's always telling him this. So he's already predicting his death, and then Peter comes along and goes, Oh no, Jesus! You can't do that! It's almost who's that with Penelope in the railroad? Who's that? Wait, uh, who's the guy? You know, they always save the chick from the railroad. That old cartoon. That who's that? No, Dudley Do Right. Dudley Do Right. Remember? And Dudley Do Right would grab her. Oh no! 
right before the big train comes by, right? I could see Peter just absolutely, Jesus, right? And and he stands there and he says, oh no, Jesus, you can't do that. And what does Jesus turn around and say to him? Right? Peter's like, whoa, right? And he goes, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Whoa. You know why he said that, right? Why did he say that? Excellent. Because Jesus came for one reason, to seek and to save those who are lost. And what did it what did it concern? He came to what? Die. He came to die. One purpose, he came to die, so that we could have a love relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, because he took our sin. Only way. Only way. And and if Satan was able to meander and get in there and try to mess up things, right? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Whoa. And then what happens? This is the sweetest. Here Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, right? I mean, this has got to be quite another low point for Peter, okay? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been called Satan or not, but it's not a good thing, all right? (laughs) Not a good thing, all right? So Peter's just thinking, you know, I love him so much. I'm going to protect him. I just love him, this and this. And then what happens? The transfiguration. Huh? The transfiguration, right? It was like, I think he says like six days later or something, and then, right? The si- and, and then the transfiguration, okay? And so here they are. Uh, six days after Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves. He's transfigured before them. His face, what? Shone like the sun, all right? Shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as as the light, okay? So here's the transformation of Jesus right before his disciples. The three dudes, Peter, James, and John. People are saying mostly because they were his favorites, mostly because Peter's outward love for Jesus. Um, Others say because John, because Jesus' love for John. And then James because he was the first one martyred. He was the first one that would lose his life for Christ. And and so, you know, the commentators tend to say, well, maybe this is why. But you, you always hear Peter, James, and John. They're like the three little you know, three little stooges with them, right? And they're coming along. And so, and so he didn't invite all of them, all the disciples. He just invited these three, okay? And so, you know, it was after six days. So, so Luke's gospel says it's about eight days, six days, eight days. What they're saying is it's that that's not a mistake in the Bible. So, you know, okay, what it is is it's based on a Greek way of saying about a week later. Whether it was six days or eight days, they say about, and that's what they used to say, that means about a week later. Okay? So, so he goes up on a high mountain, and here's, here's Jesus, okay? And here's Peter, James, and John. I'm sure they're still like, right? And they're going up, and Jesus taking up the high mountain, okay? And it's the Mount of Transfiguration. Did you get to see that, Mary? at all? You did. Okay. Was it Mount um, Hermon, or was it Mount... Tabor, do you remember what mount it was? No. Did I they... don't remember the name of it, but they, she pointed it out. It's Indigen. It's a long way off. Yeah, it's way off. It's way off. Herman, right? It's Herman, right? That's what I thought. Herman is about 9,300 feet high. Okay? So just so you know, in, in, in your sort of desert-like, this is up there. Okay? And so they're up there, and... And, you know, they, they probably spent the night because of, of the travel. Okay? And so... And so he's up there, and he then, with Peter and James, is transfigured before them. And transfigured means transformation, right? It, it speaks of a transformation. You know, not merely a change in outward appearance. The effect was extremely striking. Okay, you guys, 
visually get into this, all right? Hi, sweets. Visually get into this. Okay, it's, it's, it's striking. Jesus is so bright that his appearance is even difficult to look at. Okay? It's so bright. It's like the sun. Okay? We're told not to look at what? The sun. All right? His appearance is so bright, it's like the sun. Okay? And so it's metamorphu. Metamorphu. Transfigure. Transform. Change in form. Okay? Suggests a change of like an inmost nature that is outwardly visible. Okay? And so it's the glory, the glory that he had laid down, right? Uh, to become man. He now allows his glory to be seen. Okay? It's glory. The glory that shone forth in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? When those who were arrested fell back. When Jesus said what? I am. Wham! They fell back. Oh, that's his glory. What is I am? The great I am. I'm God. The great I am. He laid down his glory for us. He laid down his glory and became man. He stayed all God, but he laid down his glory. And in the Mount of Transfiguration, he allowed his glory to be seen. To be shown. And there's Peter. And there's James, and there's John, in his glory, right? This isn't a new miracle, okay? But a temporary cessation of an ongoing one. The real miracle, most of the time, could keep Jesus from displaying his glory. That's the real miracle, guys. It says Jesus walked through this earth that he could keep from displaying his glory. Right? That he could keep humble. That he'd become as a servant. That he would die. Right? That he'd take Philippians 2. That that's who he is. That's the miracle. That he wouldn't display his glory. And what do we tend to do? We want the glory. We rob the glory. We want the credit. We want it. And Jesus walked miraculously. Not allowing his glory to be seen. That's the miracle. That's the absolute miracle. Spurgeon says, For Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory. And that though he was rich, for our sakes he became what? He became poor. He became poor. His transfiguration. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as his light. His face that did shine as the sun. He wasn't transformed into another being, into another body. He, he was the absolute same Jesus. It was his own face that shone. It was his glory that shone, that he allowed to shine. Okay? I wrote from Genesis, or excuse me, John 17, 24. Jesus has his disciples with him when he shines in his glory. He is not glorified apart from them because they share his glory. See, it says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire, remember this is Jesus praying to God the Father, and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, disciples, us, right, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Right? We can be a part of his glory, beholding his glory. Right? We are God's temple. We are him, okay? Spurgeon says, Another thing which we may learn from our Lord Jesus Christ, having shown himself to his his apostles, thus robed in brightness, is that we are scarcely aware of the glory of which the human body is capable. Huh? 
we are scarcely aware of the human glory. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, scarcely aware of the glory of which the human body is capable. Why? Because who's in us? Right? Who's in us? Right? What does it say? We we have unveiled faces, it says in 2 Corinthians, right? We have unveiled faces. Moses, when he went to meet with God and got the Ten Commandments for the second time, after they were broken and anger and all that kind of stuff, goes back, gets the Ten Commandments, right, comes down, right? He's got a veil over his face. Why? His glory is fading. He doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to, like, get the Israelites all upset. Doesn't take much, right? Doesn't want to get them all upset. You're all shiny. You're losing your shine. What is it? God's not around here anymore? What's going on? I, mean, I can just hear him. I can just hear him. So Moses comes with a veiled face. Not us anymore. Right? We, who with unveiled faces, declare his glory, shine his glory even more. That's what it says. We, unveiled faces, are to declare and shine his glory like the sun, like the white clothes, like the radiant, even more. Inside out. Inside out. Inside out. We declare his glory even more. How are you doing with that? Your flesh getting in the way, your pride getting in the way of his glory being seen? Who doesn't want his glory to be seen through you? He's shining. He's the one, right? He's the one who's being just absolutely lifted up. We with unveiled faces shine more and more and more and more and more as we become like him. Right? We're supposed to shine. When you're walking through the world, people are supposed to go, what is so shiny about that girl? She's just so shiny. Look at her, she just shines. I mean, and you know what? She's in a horrendous situation right now, and she's shiny. She just shines. That's his glory being revealed. That's what Peter got to see. His glory being revealed, okay? So I'm going to continue this. Moses and Elijah, then in the midst of Jesus, his face shining like the sun. Look at the sun, how bright that is for a second. He's shining like the sun. His clothes are bright, bright white. Who appears with him? Whoa! Peter and James and John. I think it's Moses. No way! I think that's Elijah. Are you serious? And they're talking. How's the fishing in heaven? What's going on? Right? No, they're actually talking about his death. It says in Luke, they're talking about his death. They're talking about him going to the cross. That's what they're talking about. And so, in Luke, I'll tell you in a second. So, so here they are. Moses and Elijah appear, okay, and are talking with Jesus. Remarkably. These Old Testament dudes appear, all right? And they're speaking with the transfigured Jesus. Now, Moses had lived 1,400 years before, okay? And he was looking mighty fine, mighty fine, right? He appears, and Elijah some 900 years before, and yet they were alive and in some sort of resurrected, glorified state that is recognizable. Okay, you following me? Okay, so when I get to heaven, Mary gets to heaven, guess what? We're going to say, there's Mary Lance, there's our mom, right? Well, no, there's our dad, there's Jean Lance, right? You recognize each other. Okay? Recognizable. Okay? So, when you look at these two Old Testament guys, okay, that appear with Jesus, transfigured, all of his glory being seen, okay? Uh, Moses represented what? Do you remember? The law. The law. The law, right? This is the way to walk. These are the Ten Commandments. This is the law. This is it, right? This is what you need to do to sacrifice this and this. God will cover over your sin. Moses, lawman. Okay? What was Elijah? The law and the prophets. He was a major prophet. Okay? So Jesus 
as Elijah or Moses showed up for the law, Elijah showed up for the prophets, and the sum of the Old Testament revelation came to meet with the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus. Because both Jesus is the sum of what? The law and the what? Prophets. Because everything is done. There is no more prophecy, you know, that way. There are no more apostles. There's no more this. Because he has it all done. He says, this is my complete revelation. It is finished. This is it. There's no adding to the Bible. There's no subtracting from the Bible. That's what Pharisees did. They added. Sadducees took away because that's sad, you see, from the Bible. Right? And they took it away. Right? And so there's no more. That's the complete revelation. Don't you love how God allows Elijah and Moses to come and there he's complete in the transfiguration of Jesus. Oh my goodness. And there stand the three disciples. Right? As I was studying this, and I was thinking, you know, Moses and Elijah represent those who, who are caught, caught up to God, okay? Moses, if you read in Jude 9, Jude only has one chapter, so it's Jude 9, okay? And Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11, okay? Moses represents those who die and go to glory, okay? Like, he died, right? He died, like we're going to die, or, or unless Jesus comes first, okay? He died and went to heaven, moved to glory. Elijah, on the other hand, what? What happened to him? Raptured, baby. Raptured up, right? In what? Chariot, right? Was a horse leading it? No. Just fire, man. Jerry to fire, okay? Raptured up. Enoch, walking in the cool of the day. He so knew God. He was such his friend. He just, whoosh. Can you imagine you like talking to Enoch? <laughs> Enoch? Right. right. Raptured up. Raptured up. Way to go. Right? So here he shows... Right? You go to glory through death knowing him. You go to glory through what? Rapture. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, okay? We can be caught up to heaven without death. I'm all for that. What about you guys? I love it. All right? So Spurgeon says, From this we see saints long departed, still alive, live in their personality, are known by their names, and enjoy near access to Christ. We aren't nothings, guys. Little amoebas when you get up to heaven. You are who you are. Right? You are who you are. And the more intimate you become to him, the closer you are to him. Did you know that? Yeah, even in heaven. Uh, says in the Word of God. Yeah. This is just a practice time here. Because there will be all kinds. If you don't know, get heaven. Get um, heaven, not just 24-hour praise. Heaven, not just, get this, get heaven, not just 24-hour praise, a glorious preview of our home. It will tell you exactly how big heaven is, what it's going to look like, and it's all from the Word of God, okay? And it will tell you what we're going to do, we're going to be fellowship. Every time we had fellowship in, in the New Testament and Old Testament, it always came with what? Food. Food, always, always. Guess what? You'll be eating. No problem with weight, because we'll be perfect, right? How great is that? Right? There's, there's fruit trees, right? In season, in season. There's the river that runs through, and there's the you know, tree of life, right? I know it's avocado tree, just bear with me. All right? But I'm telling you, you want to know what heaven is? You want to know how big it is? You know the green space and everything? You know how big um, your, your little house will be? It's huge. It's huge. It, it, it's all in the Word of God. Okay? Just get that. Listen to it, because it's all from him. And that's what we will be known as. And we will enjoy, enjoy near access to Jesus, totally the light of heaven. You know why? He's in his full glory. There's no night there. He's in his full glory. He is the light. Right? He even told us in John, I'm the light of the world, right? 
But in heaven, he is the light. There is no night there. We will continue to walk in the light as he is the light. Ah. And he gave us a little bit of his glory here that Peter got to see. That's why Peter was able to write like this. Right? Through the Holy Spirit. And so, talking with him. Okay, now Peter is going to talk with him. Okay? And it's Luke 9.31. Luke 9.31, sweetie, tells us the theme of the conversation. You found it? Good. All right? And they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay? So now here's Jesus, you know, having a little kibitzing time with his old old butts, Elijah and Moses, all right? Now remember, Jesus always knew Elijah and Moses, pre-incarnate even, okay? Because that's just who God is, all right? And they spoke of the upcoming work on the cross and presumably the, the resurrection to follow. And this is what Spurgeon says. And where could there have been found greater subjects than this wondrous death and his glorious resurrection? Here the attributes of God find their most complete and most harmonious exemplification. Here the problem of human sin and salvation are met and solved at the cross. Here the travail of creation meets with its answer and key. Here are the sown, excuse me, here are sown the seeds of the new heavens and earth, in which shall dwell righteousness and peace. His is the point of unity between all ages, all dispensations, all beings, and all worlds. They appeared unto them, but they talked with him. <coughs> okay, they appeared unto them, meaning Elijah and Moses, and Jesus appeared unto them, Peter, James, and John. But they talked with him. Did they talk to Peter, James, and John? No. Elijah and Moses talked to who? Jesus. Jesus, Just Jesus, okay? The object of the two holy ones was not to converse with the apostles, but with their master, Spurgeon says. Although saints are seen of men, their fellowship is with Jesus. Isn't that great? Did you hear that? The object of the two holy ones was not to converse with the apostles, but with their master. Although saints, meaning you're either a saint or an ain't, right, believers, although saints are seen of men, their fellowship is with Jesus. We're talking with Jesus, right? So, we're going to go on here. In verses 4 and 5, Peter equates Jesus with Moses and Elijah and then is dramatically rebuked. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Get behind me, Satan! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Once again, Peter is dramatically rebuked by a voice from the cloud of God's glory. Of God's glory, okay? So, it says in 4 and 5, that Peter answered and said to Jesus, Oh Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, Jesus. One for you, Big Mo. And one for you, Elijah. Right? While he was still speaking, okay? In other words, now God interrupts Peter. (laughs) Right? While he's trying to be so gracious to these fellow, you know, travelers here. All right. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, shut up, Peter. <laughs> right? Shut up. Just shut up. Just listen to him. Just do the next right thing. Quit trying to be more, you know, like taking over Jesus' spot. Just follow him, okay? Don't try to take over. Don't try to be, oh, I love him the most, and I'm going to care for him, and no, you're not going to the cross, and oh, my Jesus. Just shut up and follow him. You're not an equal to him. Do you understand? He's my son. He's God, and you're not. Oh, that's what he meant. I listened to him. Listen to him. We are not co-equal with Jesus Christ. 
He is God. He's the one who went to the cross for us. He's the one that we're able to come. And when we arrive in heaven, God will say, what are you doing here, Margot Fiesler? Jesus says, she's mine. Oh, you can come in. Yes, happy dance, happy dance, happy dance. Right? She's mine. Nothing of who I am. I'm his. She's mine. Yep, there she is, Lamb's Book of Life. <laughs> That's it. Peter wanted to be co-equal. Lord, it's good, you know, if you wish that you will make three tabernacles here. Mark 9 talks about it. Luke 9 talks about it too, right? Peter, Peter didn't know what he was saying. I mean, really. He, 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 even though you think that these are careful words that he's choosing, he's trying to put himself on the same level as Jesus, okay? And, and having these equal building shrines for everybody. That Moses was the same as Jesus. That Elijah was the same as Jesus. Remember, they had all the problems. Well, aren't you like Elijah? Who, who do people remember? Just before, six days before, who do people say I am? Jesus said, "Right." Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. Yeah, but, but, but Peter, who do you say I am? You. Oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. That wasn't from you, Peter. That was from God, Holy Spirit. And then he goes back to what he knows again. You ever do that? Ever do that? Yeah. You go back to what you know. Peter suggested the retention of the three in association. Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the reformer, and Jesus the Messiah. The booths, the tabernacles, meaning tents, would be temporary shelters of branches that were erected like for the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what he was thinking of making. All right? And Spurgeon says, How selfish the one thought, it is good for us. What was to be done for the rest of the twelve and for the other disciples and for the whole wide world? Right? Isn't it something when you behold the glory of God and you're on this high mountaintop with Him and then all of a sudden it's just you and He and all of a sudden, you know what? All the rest of you. Right? I'm staying on this high mountaintop and, and Jesus says, God the Father goes, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every nation. Right? There is no high mountaintop staying. I allowed you to see into who I am, my full glory. I allowed you to see that, oh yeah, that's a mountaintop experience. Now I want you to go into the sun. You don't stay there. You don't stay there. You continue to. A bright cloud overshadowed, right? This is the cloud. This is the Shekinah, right? The Shekinah glory. This is God's glory that overshadows him, right? This is the same glory that led him through the, through the desert, right? This is his Shekinah glory, okay, in the Old Testament. Spurgeon says, When God draws near to man, it is absolutely necessary that his glory should be veiled. No man can see his face and live. You know that, right? No man can see God's face and live. Hence the cloud in this instance and in other cases is very, very necessary. And then he blasts in and says, listen, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When did he say that? When else did he say that? Think about it. Baptized. When Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven came out, right? Resounding. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? He deserves our special attention. Now hear him. Listen to him. I'm acknowledging him. He's always been my son. He will always be my son. All the kingdoms, everything's put under his feet. He's it. He's the big kahuna. That's it. Listen to him, okay? I mean, when you, when you think about 
how Jesus or how God rebuked Peter's attempt put put Jesus on equal footing with Moses and Elijah. Whoa. I mean, don't you wonder, like that booming voice that came out, if 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 only they heard that, or if like it echoed through the canyons, right? Right off this nine thousand foot mountaintop. People like. Was Jesus baptized again? Yeah. I think I heard the exact same words. Right? I am sure there was some kind of echo. I'm sure there was something, okay? And so Jesus is unique as his beloved son, and he deserves our absolute special attention. So shut up, Peeper. Peeper, Peter. <laughs> shut up, people, including Peter, and listen to him. How many times do we go, oh, I just want to stay right here? This is just, this is great. A little high mountain. This is just great. When I was speaking, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, um, and this happened during Christmas as well, another little lady came up to me, probably little, she's probably in her 30s, and she says to me, Everything is so great in my life that I don't want it to go away, and I don't want to go home to a heavenly home because everything is so great here. My husband. Exactly. I said, my husband. She says, my husband's great. My kids are great. My home is great. I live for all this stuff. I, I just, you know, and I, and I said, well, why wouldn't you want to go to a heavenly home where you'll be with Jesus forever and ever and ever? And, and this is, I shared portions of what it will be like. And she goes, because I'm afraid of death. And I said, are you afraid of death because you don't know that you have a heavenly home? Or are you afraid of going through the dying process? And then she just broke. Then she just broke. I said, He has allowed because of His grace, undeserved favor, that you are, you know, on this mountaintop with Him at this point. And guess what? You don't even know Him. And you haven't even accepted Him into your life. You don't even know Him as your personal Savior, the, the one who, who died for you, who lives for you, who loves you, who transforms you, who conforms you to the likeness of His Son, who's making a a room for you, who's making a home for you, who who has eternity planned for you, who who you know wakes you up, who keeps your heart beating, who gave you these children. Who gave, I, I said, His grace is allowing you to be at that mountaintop right now. I said, but but you think you've done this, and you want to just stay right there? She goes, Yeah, but it's so great. And I said, Do you think it's going to be great forever? Like you know. And she said, yeah, sort of. And I said, well, tell me about your life. Tell me about your mom. Tell me about, what have you gone through? Tell me about, and then she told me about a sister who had gone through all kinds of cancer stuff. She told me about another one who lost a baby. She told me, and I'm like, so why wouldn't that happen to you? Why couldn't that happen to you? And it was so sweet, she just broke. And we, she cried and cried and cried. I was able to pray with her and, and pray over her and pray with her and, and I gave her, you know, the book of John and we shared and stuff. I mean, she, you know, when, when people think that, that this is it and they hold on to all of what they think is this mountain, you know, and that's their little glory, you know, it, and to think that that same God has allowed that in their lives when they're spitting on them, when they're rejecting them. 
that's our God. Well, yeah, she had to look. And meanwhile, she turns into a pillar of salt. Just for one little peek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Nicole. Um, I, I just can't keep thinking about that, how us as Christians are kind of on the mountaintop because we may know Jesus and, you know, he helps us through our trials and tribulations and stuff. And that we need to so I, you know, we probably all have unbelievers in our lives. And I was just at the point, I was, you know, frustrated. And I'm like, you know, I'm just staying at this top end, you know, so what about you? I'm sorry. Mm. You know, there's nothing I can do. But I have to come off the mountain. That's right. Into the suffering. And yep. that's where I know I'm going to suffer. Yep. Is if I, you know, get out there and spread the gospel like I'm supposed to. That's right. I'm scared mm. and it's hard. Mm. You have mm. to. And, we, and that's the, where it comes hard to be saved, you know. And we have to get off our mountain as Christians. Absolutely. Get down there. and Because it's in the valley where the fruit's made. We can't. Just say, oh, I'm sorry, I believe where I am. Woo! Yeah. You know, that's so wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to do it. We have to ask for his. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Amen, Nicole. That's what it is. And that's what the disciples, in closing, that's what the disciples did. They fell on their faces with this transfiguration. After they heard God say, so listen, they fell on their faces, okay, and they were greatly afraid. Okay, that doesn't mean they were like, oh, okay. They were in reverent awe. That's what that means. They were just like, oh, what am I beholding? What am I beholding? You ever been with people who are beholding the glory of God? Oh, you're great. You know when you're with somebody who's beholding the glory of God. Oh, yeah. Because you're right there with them. There's intimate. They're beholding His glory. They just walk with authority and power no matter what they're going through. Because it's Him. Because it's Him. And the disciples fell on their faces when they saw Jesus transfigured. Not when His face shone like the sun. Not when His clothes became as white as light. Not when Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Not when Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus. Not even when the cloud of glory came over them. But when the disciples heard what? The voice from heaven. Right Before they didn't fall on the ground in fear, they were like this. Wow, look what's going on. Wow, this is really cool. And then God speaks. And then God speaks. And they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid, Right? Spurgeon says this, They were in the immediate presence of God and listening to their father's voice. Well might they lie and prostrate and tremble. Too clear a manifestation of God, even though it related to Jesus, would rather overpower us than empower us. And so Jesus says to him, what? Come on, arise, come on, don't be afraid. Right? This is my father. Right? Rise, don't be afraid. Right? So they, now they're uniquely aware of Jesus, uniquely in awe of Jesus, okay? And this helps explain the purpose of the transfiguration when I was studying this. And what, why Peter shared in First Peter 5 where he's sharing, and I beheld the glory. 
right? I saw this. I'm an eyewitness. I've seen this, okay? It helps explain the purpose of the transfiguration to reassure the disciples that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Even if he would indeed be crucified, like he just talked about, okay? As he had so surprisingly revealed to him just six days before. Guess what? He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. That's who he is. There's the purpose. There's the purpose of his glory. So you can know it. And then it says, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but who? Jesus. Jesus. They're on their face. Jesus says, come on, rise up. Come on, come on, come on. And what happens? They see him alone. They just look at him. That's how it's supposed to be, isn't it? That's how it's supposed to be, isn't it? Oh, it's great there was Elijah. Oh, it's great there was Moses. But oh no. It's significant that their entire focus was on Jesus alone. Jesus absolutely alone. The cloud was gone. Moses had left. Elijah had disappeared. And no one remained but the disciples and Jesus. And they were looking at his face. Wow. You guys, I want to share something with you. When the experience was all over, there's only Jesus. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've had a spiritual mountaintop high experience, okay, or you've received some ministry from the Holy Spirit, or some gifting, but when it's all over, when it's done and when it's gone, nothing remains but Jesus. Those are just temporary holding tanks that are used here on earth. But only Jesus is going to remain. So if you are looking at the mountaintop of, I don't know, the gifting that he's given you or an experience that you had at a retreat or you're living off that or the experience of... of, um, you know, a book you've just read by Joyce Meyer and it's lifted you up, you guys, it's not going to last. Okay? You can't live from experience to experience to experience. Jesus says you have to live from strength to strength to strength to strength to strength. And usually where your strength is made through him ain't the mountaintops. Those are just icing on the cake. Jesus just let Peter, James, and John, because they were his closest disciples, just in on his glory. Because they were his intimates. But it was walking with them all the other times that mattered. You can't live on the experience. You have to live looking absolutely at his face. And I'm going to end with what, how Spurgeon wrote this, and it's, it's amazing. It might have been that after the events of the Transfiguration, only Moses remained for the disciples. Theoretically, when the experience was over, there would have been only Moses. Though Moses was a great man compared to Jesus, he was like the moon to the sun. It would be sad to exchange the grace and truth that came by Jesus for the law that came by Moses. But there are those sad ones who see Moses and his law only to this day. It might have been that after the events of the Transfiguration, only Elijah remained for the disciples. Theoretically, when the experience was over, there would have been only Elijah. 
Elijah was a man great for the power of his word and the boldness of his national reforms, yet all this doesn't compare to the person and work of Jesus alone. It might have been after the events of the Transfigure that all three remained. At first, this might have seemed to be the best. Why not all three? Yet now that Jesus has come, Moses and Elijah can fade into their supportive roles and never be put on the same level as Jesus ever again. Though the apostles saw Jesus only, they saw quite sufficient, for Jesus is enough for time and for eternity. Enough to live by, enough to die by. Oh, look to him, and though it be Jesus only, though Moses should condemn you, and Elias should alarm you, yet Jesus only shall be enough to comfort and enough to save you. The priests of Rome and their Anglican mimics officiously offer us their services. How glad they would be if we would bend our necks once again to their yoke. But we thank God we have seen Jesus only. And if Moses is gone, and if Elijah has gone, we are not likely to let the shavelings of Rome come in and fill up the vacancy. Jesus only is enough for our comfort without either Anglican, Mosaic, or Roman priest. At this day, my brethren, we have no master but Christ. We submit ourselves to no vicar of God. We bow down ourselves before no great leader of a sect, neither to Calvin nor Arminius, to to Wesley or Whitfield. One is our master, and that one is enough, for we have learned to see the wisdom of God and the power of God in Jesus only. That's why you stop and you read 1 Peter 5 when he says, A witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Because he experienced it. He experienced his glory. That's why you stop and you soak and you soak and you soak on that one word. And you look and see how Peter saw and experienced Jesus' glory. So that we can walk through our lives realizing that, wow, the miracle is the fact that he doesn't reveal his glory, but that he keeps it. That he keeps it. That's what he kept doing on earth. So that he could go to the cross for us. So now we can, with unveiled faces, reveal his glory more and more and more. Because when he died, moved to heaven, he sent us another counselor, the spirit of Christ that lives in us. There's no excuse not to be like him. None. Only Jesus. How are you revealing his glory? How are you doing? Ask him. He'll tell you. He'll run to you. You stink at that, Margo. <laughs> this is an area you need to work on. You know what? This is good. This, he wants his glory to be seen. Don't rob him of his glory and take it. That's self-glory. That's ugh, Nobody wants that. Only his glory. With your family. With your husband. With the unlovely. With your neighbor. With your kids. His glory. Unveiled faces. Being seen more and more and more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we bow down before you because we have seen your glory. And we praise you. We praise you for... uh, how you had to lay aside your glory. You, you didn't have to. You did. Because you wanted to. For us. So that the Holy Spirit could live in us during this time and we could have unveiled faces declaring your glory more and more and more. Lord, please forgive us. 
please, please forgive us for wanting to rob it, for not just soaking in your word, for not being changed to strength and to strength and to strength and to strength. Lord, I'm asking that if we are living on experiences, God, that you would just um, run to us and we would hand that over to you and say, oh, Lord, it's you alone. It's in the mundane that you are revealed. And so, Jesus, speak to us this week. As we read through Second Peter, God, uh, as well, God, speak to us. Speak aloud. May we hear you. May we um, look for ways that you are revealing yourself as a self-revealing God to us and change us from glory to glory to glory to glory, which is all yours. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name.